Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Butterfly. The word conjures up images of delicate creatures with jewel-colored wings flitting gently from flower to flower in the garden. They are lovely to look at and amazing in how they catch the light, in how their colors dance before our eyes, and in how they delight us no matter whether we are old or very young. In addition, they work in the garden as pollinators. I had a chance recently to visit with Kathy Downs, who is a Texas Master Naturalist and Monarch Watch Conservation Specialist. Monarchs are one of the most beloved of butterflies. They are also unusual in that they have annual migrations to a warmer climate in the winter. Kathy has studied monarch butterflies and is an expert on them and on their habits and needs. But she also has expertise on butterflies in general and their close relatives, moths. Both moths and butterflies belong to the order Lepidoptera, which comes from Greek and means scales and wing. In this program, we'll learn about butterflies and moths, and in particular, the monarch butterfly. I began my conversation with Kathy Downs by asking her to describe the differences between moths and butterflies. Uh, the most obvious difference is moths are nocturnal and most butterflies are diurnal, so daytime butterflies and nighttime moths. That's a generalization, but for the most part, if you're out during the day and you see a flying insect, uh, you can generally assume that what you might think is a moth could be a butterfly. So most obviously one is daytime and one is nighttime. The most identifying characteristic, moths versus butterflies, would be the antennae. So on a moth, the antennae generally look like a feather. They don't have a distinct shape per se, and they have tiny hairs along the antennae that make them look like a feather. Butterflies' antennae are straight with a small ball or globe at the end. Okay. Moths are nighttime critters, so they need to be a little warmer. So their bodies are kind of furry or hairy. Mm -hmm. uh, butterflies are smooth and uh, have very few scales along the thorax and abdomen. Um, the eyes are a little different. Uh, they both have compound eyes, but... Moss eyes tend to be larger for nighttime. Right. Um, the wings are different. Uh, moths have hinged wings. So when they're resting, they tend to have their wings out flat. Right. Almost like a tent. Mm -hmm. Butterflies tend to rest with their wings closed together and upright. Right. Um, and the chrysalis are different. Their pupation method is different. They both go through complete metamorphosis, uh, and so they're going to both have the egg and caterpillar uh, and chrysalis stage, but moss will spin uh, an outer uh, cocoon. In other words, their larva is inside of a... a of a cocoon. They'll spin an outer enclosure sort right. of uh, yeah. a vehicle that the larva sits inside to uh, pupate. The butterfly 
larva is the chrysalis. In other words, it only has a harder outer coating on the pupa hmm. as opposed to enclosing itself in a completely different vehicle. Really? So those would be the most distinct differences. Right, right. So, uh, and we've all admired the colors and patterns of butterflies. So, but when we're looking at the butterfly's wings, what are those, what is that made up of, the colors? It's a really good question. That's a really good question. You know, it's that powdery substance. If you've Mm -hmm. ever caught a butterfly and you've had a little bit of that powder come off, those are actually scales. And they're both on the butterfly and the moth. And the word lepidoptera actually breaks down to the Greek scaly wing. And so that defines them perfectly. There are actually about 125,000 scales per square inch on a butterfly's wing. And the monarch uh, scales are more firmly attached and a little bit larger than most butterflies, which helps them in their migration. Um, which is kind of a distinct um, difference in other butterflies opposed to monarchs. They also, the scales will reflect light, which gives them the different colors that we see, even the light that changes sometimes when you see yeah. butterflies, scales mm-hmm. in the forms of eyes uh, and so forth on the wings. Um, they also fill with air to give the butterfly lift uh, for flight and so forth. Um so, so when you, you know, you mentioned that it's sort of that powdery substance that comes off when you touch the wing, mm-hmm. those are the scales? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, so if like you put a... those under a magnifying glass yeah. uh, and you looked at the wing of a butterfly, it would almost look as though they were roof shingles. They overlap really? one another and it almost looks like the shingles on a roof if you saw a magnified uh-huh. uh, wing of yeah. scales. Yeah. They overlap each other. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm talking today with Kathy Downs, who is a Master Naturalist and Monarch Watch Conservation Specialist. Um, and we're talking about, actually, butterflies right now. But uh, you, So we were just talking about the wings, but what about the rest of the butterfly? What, what are all the different parts and what do they do? Okay. Uh, well, butterflies and moths both, but butterflies and moths both have uh, proboscis for eating. This is their uh, food canal. It's usually held curled up under the head until it's time for feeding, at which point they unroll. Uh, the proboscis works like a straw, except that they don't literally suck up like you would with a straw full of water. Right. Um, they use like capillary action, which means it's a gravity-fed action, where they release the proboscis into the nectar, and the gravity pushes uh, any nectar and whatever tiny food particles might fit through that canal hmm. um, into the butterfly mouth parts. Um, the proboscis, it's interesting in the butterfly, when they close out of the chrysalis, the proboscis is actually in two parts, and they have to fuse the part together. So if you watch a butterfly close, you'll see their front feet actually pushing the proboscis, the two parts, into one piece. It's oh. kind of like a zipper. It's interesting. Um, being an insect, of course, they have six legs. Um, butterflies generally hold their front forelegs up close to the body and they use those four legs uh, for tasting. They actually taste with their feet. Moss tend to use all six legs to to move onto flowers and nectar. Their eyes are compound, uh, wide ranging uh, for sight. Their antennae uh, actually hold about six to 10, well, 16,000 scales on the antennae. So they're very, very sensitive. Yeah. 
and their antennae uh, smell out the nectar that they're looking for. And in the monarch, there may be some other sensors that are sensitive to light, which may help um, possibly give them some notice about shorter daytimes or longer daytimes and giving really? them some sort of sensors about migration. Um, the insect, of course, has three body parts, the head, the thorax, and the uh, abdomen. What first drew your interest to butterflies and then specifically to monarch butter butterflies? It was the host plants that they use. It was fascinating to me that this insect had a variety of needs in the ecosystem, that as a larva, they actually had chewing mouth parts and they needed a certain kind of plant for that as larva, and they needed a completely different kind of plant as an adult. A lot of people that I worked with in the gardens that I was volunteering uh, didn't realize that difference. Um, they saw plants that they were planting in their gardens getting chewed up by worms. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so they would kill the worms. And they didn't realize that in order to maintain and sustain a butterfly population at home, they needed to have these host plants and to enjoy the fact that their host plants were being eaten right. in order to keep butterflies in the garden. So the real trick to having butterflies year-round in your garden is to have these edible host plants for the caterpillars. So that really intrigued me, and that's kind of what pushed me to move into the education realm of being a naturalist, to get out there and to report on the importance of native host plants. As I was doing this, I was watching monarch populations decline. I was watching the fact that no one really understood what this could mean, that monarchs were an indicator species, the canary in the coal mine, if you will. And it was making me very nervous. And there was one gentleman, Dr. Kip Kiphart, that I had been working with very closely, and I could see that he was struggling to keep the message out there. Right. And so at um, a Native Plant Society symposium, Dr. Chip Taylor from the University of Kansas um, Monarch Watch, and Lonnie Childs, the president of Native Plant Society of Texas, and Dr. Kiphart approached me with an idea of bring back the monarchs to Texas. And that's when I first got involved um, with the monarchs specifically. And so I started to move through the state of Texas, educating people on the monarch uh, situation. So when you say uh, monarchs are an indicator species, what, what does that mean? Well, monarchs were an easily identifiable and lovable insect. Everybody knew what a monarch was. Yeah. Everybody loved monarchs. They had childhood memories of monarchs. They wanted monarchs. They wanted to know how to draw monarchs into the garden. So it was easy to move the discussion to a larger issue to move the discussion to monarchs are not the best pollinators in the world but if you plant for monarchs you'll be able to help increase the pollinator populations yeah. that we were losing including bee colony decline songbird decline grassbird decline and so forth so okay. monarchs became a brand or an icon if you will yeah. to help to move the pollinator issue and uh, the food web issue into a greater spotlight yeah, I've always wondered why, you know, what is the attraction of monarchs? There are so many beautiful butterflies 
And it's interesting how that's become sort of a central focus of a lot of people. There was a uniqueness and a mystery to monarchs. Where did they go? I mean, Dr. Fred Urquhart, uh, way back in the early 70s, had the same questions. Where did they go? Why are they leaving us? Why do they come back? And how do they come back in such huge numbers and then leave us so suddenly? And it's the mystery, I think, and the gravity and the majesty Mm -hmm. of that particular butterfly that moves us. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Kathy Downs, Master Naturalist, and we're talking about monarchs. But right now, it's time for a break. We're back now. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Kathy Downs, Master Naturalist and Monarch Watch Conservation Specialist. Uh, We're talking about monarchs and uh, wanted to start uh, talking about the life cycle of a monarch, including that migration that you talked about earlier. Okay. There are actually two life cycles to a monarch. There's an annual cycle And there's, of course, the insect life cycle. So we'll go to the insect life cycle first. So the monarchs go through um, complete metamorphosis. So they begin with the egg, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg. So we'll we'll (laughs) talk about ovipositing. So a monarch mates, and they're actually a kind of promiscuous mater. They can take up to eight partners. Um, And the final uh, male is going to deliver the sperm that's going to fertilize the egg for the monarch. So they can actually mate up to eight times. They're going to lay anywhere from one to 500 eggs, traveling up to 50 miles to look for the milkweed, where they're only going to lay one egg at a time. And that's going to be on the underside of the milkweed leaf, usually near the top Mm -hmm. of the milkweed, uh, providing no competition for the caterpillar that will emerge because monarchs, butterflies in general, insects in general, don't take care of their young. So it's giving them the best protection that they could possibly do. The egg's going to hatch in about four days, eating itself out of the eggshell, and then turning around and actually eating the eggshell like many insects for additional nutrition, amino acids and salts and so forth. It's going to outgrow its cuticle or its outer layer of skin and molt. And we call these stages, we'll have five of these stages, we call these stages instars. It will go through five of these stages, growing, eating, growing, eating, growing, eating, like the very hungry caterpillar that it is, through five of these caterpillar stages. At the fifth instar, it's going to look for a high, dry, protected place. It will spin a small stub with a spinneret that's at the bottom of its mouth and hang itself upside down in the shape of a letter J through a small uh, clasper that it has on the end of its um, caterpillar body. And And where is it? On a milkweed again? It will find some place usually higher or drier um, out of traffic. might be the eave of your house or on the end of a trellis or on a tree trunk or not generally in the milkweed patch. Mm -hmm. Um, Some place it will crawl off to. It's going to 
hang there for about 12 hours. And during this time, there's some amazing things going on in that caterpillar body. It's going through some incredible cellular changes. Eventually, after about 12 hours, it's going to lose that final cuticle or skin and reveal a green larva underneath. It's going to do kind of a little wiggle dance and then reveal this beautiful green chrysalis with several gold dots strategically placed. The gold dots were not really sure what purpose they provide. We do know that chrysalis is Greek for gold, thus the name chrysalis. We do know that the chrysalis contains tiny openings called spiracles, which allow the uh, oxygen to get inside and uh, promote the changes that are necessary. We do know that sunlight will reflect off the gold and provide some camouflage. So these are all possibilities, but we're not sure what that happens. It takes about 10 days for the chrysalis to uh, form uh, into the complete butterfly, at which point they will crack open and a fully formed butterfly emerges. When it emerges, the wings are very tiny. The abdomen is very large. The abdomen is full of hemolymph or uh, butterfly blood, if you will, which uh, palpitates from the abdomen into the wings. The wings are full and circulating with this hemolymph. It will rest there about four hours until everything is dry and full and circulating and then go ahead off and either start mating as soon as four hours old or uh, collecting nectar and then that cycle uh, as an adult they'll last about two to five weeks so the entire uh, larval cycle lasts about 30 days right and then once so what you're saying once it's fully formed and flying around Mm -hmm. it's going to live about two to five weeks okay except for the migrating butterfly. Yeah, so that, that generation of butterfly will last seven to nine months. That's probably the longest life cycle of any known yeah. butterfly. But that one generation is going to be the migrating butterfly. So that gets into a whole nother annual cycle. Yeah. So now we can talk about the annual cycle. So we'll start with the overwintering generation, which is already seven to nine months old. They begin their migration somewhere around the 1st of March. The days are getting longer. It's getting a little bit sunny. They start to swoop down from these volcanic mountain ranges that they overwinter in in Mexico, picking up a little bit of water that they need to metabolize into the sugars that they'll use for energy uh, for flight. They'll pick up some of this water. They'll nectar a little bit, and they'll start to move north looking for milkweed. They'll come straight through Texas. All the flyways come through Texas, pretty much. They'll go along the Gulf Coast. They'll get up maybe as far as Kansas, laying eggs all along the way. And then that seven to nine-month-old generation will die. The new eggs will emerge. They'll breed eventually as adults. Then that generation will die. The new generation moves further north. Same cycle continues. They're repopulating the continent all the way north as far as milkweed can survive, which is about the 50-degree latitude in Canada. Then that generation emerges, and the migration south starts again. That generation of butterflies, which is the third or fourth or fifth generation, generally we're going to say the fourth, that generation lives 
seven to nine months, and the whole cycle starts over it's just again. It's an amazing thing. That... It's what makes them so mysterious yeah. and what makes them so unique. So are male, how, can we distinguish a male monarch from a female? We have to look pretty closely, but we can, yes. On the male, there are two black cellular pouches on the hind wing. And these scaly pouches were originally, well, and they still do, contain some pheromes, but they're no longer in use by monarchs. They uh, are also evident on queens uh, and a couple of the other milkweed uh, butterflies. Um, Males also on the uh, end of the abdomen have kind of scissor-shaped claspers. On the female, the end of the abdomen has a very noticeable notch. So you can tell the male and the female are that way. But you'd have to way. be examining them pretty closely. You would close. have to examine them pretty closely to <laughs> yeah. see the abdomen differences. But right. you can pretty much tell uh, from a little ways away if you can see the black dots on the hind wing, those antichoidinal patches, they're called. Yeah. Um, and the veining is much thicker on the female than the male. Um, if you look at the veined wings, you'll see some smudginess, almost kind of some smokiness, mm-hmm. a little thicker banding mm-hmm. on the female than the male. So those would be the most obvious differences. And then uh, in terms of the, what they eat, they're, so they're eating nectar and pollen from the milkweed? Well, they, or... they collect pollen. They're not the best pollinators in the world because they don't have as much... Uh, as much hairiness as, say, the moss. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't go as deeply. They're probably, um, well, of course, they're eating two separate plants in different stages. They're only eating milkweed and no other plant as a larval food source. Many of the other insects, many of the other butterflies have evolved over time to choose between several larval food plants, and that has never happened with the monarchs. They can still only use milkweed and no other host plant. Now, there are many different kinds of milkweeds, over 100, about 160 to 180 different types of milkweeds, and we have about 70 of those in Texas, so we're pretty well stocked. We have a good good selection for them here. Um, Asclepias species specifically um, are our species of concern here in Texas, but they'll also use uh, Metalia species and Funostrum species uh, in a pinch. These are species of milkweeds. These are all species of milkweeds here in Texas. Some are vines, um, some are ground crawlers, and so forth. Um, Common milkweed, which is found north, uh, I'd say north starting from Kansas, Georgia, and north. Common milkweed is the literally the most common milkweed plant for breeding. Yeah. So more monarchs breed on common milkweed, lay eggs on common milkweed than any other milkweed in the country. The major breeding ground there is through the bread belt, the bread basket, if you will. And most of that is common milkweed. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Kathy Downs, and we're talking about monarchs. Kathy is a master naturalist and monarch watch conservation specialist. So, um, and we were just talking about milkweeds, and I understand that um, there's some, uh, I don't know what to call it, element or something in milkweeds, the glycosides, that pass on a poison to the monarch. Um, how does that, yeah, talk about that. Milkweed contains uh, milky sap. If you break the leaf, you'll get milky sap. And I want to make this one uh, 
caveat about that. Don't get that sap in your eyes, uh-huh. whatever you do. If you're working with milkweed and you're working with larvae, be sure and wash your hands thoroughly after every single use because that sap in your eyes can give you a corneal abrasion. Mm-hmm. So you want to use great care not to get that sap in your eyes. Right. And for the monarch, they actually sequester that it's called cardiac glycoside. It's very similar to digitalis, where it's a heart medicine. And the cardiac glycoside, excuse me, is actually sequestered in the cuticle of the skin of the larva. And it promotes a vibrant, rich color in the larva of green and white and black. And you'll notice that other uh, milkweed butterflies, like the queen and so forth, also gain that color. And that's kind of a warning signal. Now, once a vertebrate, they are actually toxic to vertebrates. So anything with backbones are going to get violently ill if they taste one of these caterpillars. So generally, if they go ahead and eat one caterpillar, I can guarantee you they will not eat another. As the final larva, just before pupation, they sequester a great deal of this in the cuticle, and that holds over to the adult butterflies. So the adult is actually sequestering in their wing and abdomen um, some of that glycoside. So the adult is also toxic to vertebrates. So the milkweed is just a wonderful plant that they've evolved with over the millennia um, to provide them that incredible defensive adaptation. Just another amazing natural phenomenon brought to you by Mothering Earth. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell a friend about Mothering Earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.